I feel all out of sorts this evening because uh, Corey and the girls went to Denver to visit her brother for a few days, and I'm just <laughs> lost. But <laughs> Corey really does a lot. <laughs> I love her. Uh, so we are continuing on in this series in John chapters 2 through 4 called A Year in the Life of Jesus. And we're actually starting the last of those chapters, chapter 4, this evening. Now, in this series, we're actually going to start a mini-series. It's not a soap opera, but it is a little scandalous, I guess. Um, chapter 4, and, and it's especially this story of the Samaritan woman at the well is just so packed full of goodness that I had to break it into three sermons. So we're just going to take the first 15 verses today and uh, and basically just dig right in. What I'm going to do is we'll look at the first six verses and kind of get our, our setting and our background and we'll go from there. So, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was setting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, which is high noon, real hot part of the day. So, we pick up the story right where we left off last week. Jesus was uh, baptizing in the same general area as John the Baptist. And as John points out here, Jesus wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were. Anyway, so they're, they're baptizing in this area. And remember last week, the big... The big deal was all of John the Baptist's disciples said, Hey, aren't you jealous that all these people are going to see Jesus now? And John had humility. He wasn't jealous. Remember the story. Well, in the interim time... In fact, let's get the map up there if we can. Uh, do we have the map? Yeah, any time to use my laser, I will do it. So, last week our story took us about right here up in the Jordan River Valley. That's where Jesus and John were baptizing. And since then, Jesus has moved back down into this region of, uh, of Judea somewhere. Now, the story says that Jesus was in Judea, which is this region, and he wants to go to Galilee, which is this region. One little problem, right in the middle, is Samaria. Now, there's two main ways that you could get to Galilee from Judea. You could take the short route, which would be a trail right up through Samaria. Or, you could take the long way up the Jordan River Valley, which was rockier and hillier. And... Um, Oddly enough, most people went around Samaria if they were Jewish. Now, here's a little overview of Samaria. As you see, Samaria is this region right in the middle with Judea to the south, Galilee to the north. And the Samaritan people actually had a lot in common with the Jews. Here's a few things they had in common. They both uncompromisingly worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. They both came from the same ancestry through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they both adhered to the law of Moses, especially the, you know, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But there were several, many, many differences between them as well. Four real important ones are these. 
The Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible as scripture, as authoritative for their life. Whereas the Jews, of course, had the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. Number two, the Samaritans rejected the Jerusalem temple as the place of true worship. And instead, they had this place called Mount Gerizim, which, of course, was in Samaria. They thought that was where you're supposed to worship and make sacrifices. And, of course, the Jews saw the temple in Jerusalem as the place. The third difference is that the Samaritans kind of had their own priests. They had their own priestly line that they said they could trace back all the way to Moses' brother Aaron, who was the first main priest of Israel. And of course, the Jews thought they had the priestly line, so they didn't. Just, they did not agree on that. But probably the most significant difference, at least in popular culture in that day, was that the Samaritans were viewed by Jews as people of mixed blood. Way back when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they allowed certain settlers to come back to that area of Samaria. And uh, they basically had families with some of the Jews there, and so they weren't pure. And therefore, the pure Jews from the Jerusalem area thought that the people of Samaria had no right to the land. Okay? Now, if you don't like lists and facts, let me just say this. The Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other at all. Okay. So, many Jewish people, if they were going from the region of Judea, instead of going through Samaria to get to Galilee, they would go up this Jordan River Valley, which, like I said, is the long way and it's a little harder. Here's why they would do that. First of all, there is a high rate of roadside robbery if you went through Samaria. I mean, imagine today, I, I don't know if you... It's kind of hard not to keep up with the situation in Israel and Palestine right now, but if you're an Israeli, you don't want to just walk into the Palestine and vice versa. It's, it's kind of dangerous, right? So you go around. And same thing is true there. There's some danger in going through Samaria. The second thing, and now especially for a Jewish religious leader or the leader of a movement, say a Baptistic movement like Jesus is right here, if you went through Samaria, there's a good chance you might break some purity laws like eating any, with any utensils or pottery that were uh, from Samaria, buying anything there, touching anyone. I mean, all that is danger of breaking purity codes. So, most people go around. Well, interestingly, it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Why does he have to go through Samaria? Well, I think that the story is going to unfold in the next few weeks, but we'll see a little little hints of it today. Let me let me just leave that as a as a little cliffhanger for you. Why does Jesus have to go through Samaria? All right, so he does go through Samaria. That's the fact of the story. And what happens is he gets tired. So he stops at a well. Now, kind of interesting aside again, but not really an aside for John. What's John been emphasizing since chapter 1? Jesus is God in the flesh. God incarnate. And this shows that Jesus is actually getting tired. Now here's why this is important. If you were a Greek or a Roman, there's stories in your mythology about gods coming down and pretending to be human. But they would never, ever admit to being tired or thirsty or in any way fallible. They just pretended to be human. 
Christian theology deeply believes that Jesus became human. He emptied himself and became flesh. And here Jesus is showing a quality of that humanness that he gets tired. Why is that important? (laughs) Well, because I'm kind of tired right now and I know that Jesus identifies with me. That's that's one reason that's important. Uh, There's several others as well, but... Jesus is human, and he, um, he's tired. He stops at this well. Interesting thing here is that the New Testament has two ways that you can say well in Greek. One is pege, pege, and you know what that means? That means a well with running water in it, like a spring. Pege means a spring. There's another word named fra'ar, fra'ar, that means like a cistern or a catch basin that catches rainwater. Not living water. I'm just saying, that might come up in a little bit. There'll be a quiz. So, pege is what it says here that Jesus stopped by this well of Jacob's and it's this pege, it's this living water, running water well. It's about the sixth hour, noon, hot, he's tired. He's at the well. And this is interesting if you're a Jewish reader. Why would God in the flesh... I mean, we knew He would come as a Jew, but why would He go to Samaria? Hmm. Alright, so that's the the background of the story. Now let's enter in the real tension. Listen to this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John, the author, tells us, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John does this because his audience is getting this book after the fall of Jerusalem, after 70 A.D. Many of the Jewish people have now dispersed around the Roman Empire, and you might have a generation of religious Jews who are not necessarily from the land. They may not have even known about this thing with Samaritans. You know, if you're, if you're a Jew in Rome and you're a young person reading this for the first time, you may not have known there was this deal with Samaritans. So John the author is, is a nice guy giving us some background. Well, this scene is about to get steamy and scandalous. That's why it's a miniseries, I think. A little bit like a soap opera. And John tells us three things about this, about this woman. Number one, she's a woman. I know it doesn't sound like much. It doesn't sound like much at all in our culture. But in the ancient Near East, women could not leave the house unescorted. Sounds horrible. I'm just saying the way it was. I'm not saying we should go back there. I'm just saying they weren't supposed to be out unescorted. Okay? They never went out in public by themselves. So that's what we have here. Not only that, but this woman is a Samaritan. Now, in, even today in Middle Eastern culture, in very conservative circles, if a man and a woman who are not married are together alone for 20 minutes or more, people just assume that sexual contact has happened. Okay, so now here's a woman, alone with Jesus, and it just gets better, it says she's a Samaritan woman. There's things that I was reading, ancient historical stuff, about things that Jewish people said about Samaritan women. It's horrible, completely, very racist, but I can't even repeat them here. Let me just put it this way. 
Samaritan women were seen as perpetually unclean. So, Jesus, religious leader, man, alone, out in public with this Samaritan woman. Can it get any worse? Well, yes, it can, actually. He's at the well at high noon. And we know from many different background sources that the women in this culture oftentimes would go to the well in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening, and they would go in groups. They would go in groups and socialize. And I was kind of thinking, I wonder if that's where... uh, you know, the gossip at the water cooler came from. You know, it didn't come from the office environment. It was the well. They would hang out at the well and talk. You know, but this is where a great amount of socialization took place. This woman is alone at a time when she would know she would not meet anybody else there. Nobody goes to the well at noon. Why would she do that? unless she was an outcast from her own people. And certainly later on, especially next week, we'll see more about this woman and we'll learn that she's her moral characters in question. So now the tension is thick. Jesus, the guy who we've been following for the first three chapters and doing all these signs and wonders, is in a compromising situation with a single Jew, uh, Samaritan woman who is questionable moral character at a well. And of course, any good Jewish religious leader guy would just leave. But what does Jesus do? He talks to her, and he asks her for a drink. He asks her for a drink he doesn't have anything to drink with, so if she gave him a drink, he'd have to use a Samaritan drinking vessel. Man, this is scandalous. I know it's hard for us to like, get that, but this is crazy. He risks his reputation to relate to her. And then... He answers her in this really enigmatic, very strange way. He says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What a strange statement. It's very similar to when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, we know that you must be from God based on the things that you're doing. And then Jesus doesn't say thank you or you're right. He says, you've got to be born again. I mean, how weird. Like, No context there for that statement. Well, here the woman is saying, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are talking to me? And Jesus just says, if you had a clue about who you were talking to, you would ask him and he would give you living water. There's a few terms in here that are kind of confusing, so let's break it down. First of all, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God... What on earth is the gift of God? Put very simply, I'm simplifying here, but the gift of God throughout, especially Old Testament Scripture, is God's salvation. God's salvation. God's rescuing of people. Uh, and of course, certainly interpreted through the New Testament, it's eternal life, but we're not quite there yet. So the, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the one who gives salvation, eternal life, you would have asked Him who says to you, give me a drink, and he would have uh, given you living water. Living water. Now, living water has two meanings in, in, to this woman. The first meaning, of course, is running water. Like I said before, it's, it's not water that's sitting in a cistern or a catch basin or one of those blue tubs you put under your gutters to water the plants. It's water that is a river or a spring. It's fresh and tastes a lot better. So the women may have thought Jesus was talking about that kind of living water. But there's another theological living water that is all throughout the Old Testament. 
And Jeannie touched on it earlier. One of the names for Yahweh in the Old Testament is a fountain of living waters. Fountain of living waters is one of the the ways that God is referred to. So, to sum this all up, Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is you're talking to, you would ask Him and He would give you living waters. Let me ask you this. Who can give the gift of God salvation? And who can give God's presence except... I don't know. We'll see what she finds out. It just seems like Jesus is laying it out there. Well, verse 10 is a verse about identity. Verses 11 and 12 touch on identity too. Listen to the woman's response. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. Immediately, you know what this says? She's thinking physical H2O. Okay, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And this well is deep. Actually, it's, uh, it's, to this day, it's 100 feet deep. Jacob's well is one of these well-attested archaeological finds that we're, we're 99.99% sure that that's actually Jacob's well. So um, it's very deep. And uh, you know, she says, you have nothing to, do, to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? And here's the statement. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well? and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle. Certainly, you're not greater than Jacob who gave us this well, are you? Well, how ironic. How ironic. Of course, Jesus is greater. This woman doesn't have the luxury of what we have. She hasn't read the first three chapters of John so far. This is just happening to her in real time. But we know that the whole time John has been saying there's more to Jesus. In fact, he's God in the flesh. And so when the woman says to to Jesus, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? All of us who have read up to this point so far say, yes, he is. He is greater. And this is classic Greek irony, actually. In, In many Greek plays that Jesus' audience would have been familiar with, irony went like this. There's the the narrator and the audience share special information that the characters don't have. So we share special information with John, the writer of this gospel, that the woman at the well doesn't have. We know who Jesus is. And so it's it's actually supposed to be kind of funny or ironic or provoke a chuckle, but you guys are kind of subdued today. (laughs) Yes! Okay, so... (laughs) Um, Yeah, you get it. Now, here's something interesting. Jesus stops at this well, the one Jacob's well, and it's called a pege. A pege. You know who calls it a pege? John, the author. Okay. But now he's quoting the woman, the Samaritan woman. And do you know what she calls the well? Frear. Jacob's well to the woman gives only the stagnant water. The catch basin water fills up with rain and dew. It's interesting. Let's go on and see why that's important. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
springing up to eternal life. Jacob's well and the earth wells, water on earth, is essential. Essential for life. What's the latest? Last I heard we're made of 75% water. Anyone know anything different? Sometimes I've heard up to 90, but there's a lot of water in this guy right here. A lot of water out there. We're made of water. But water only gives bios life. Bios life. We've heard this term before, right? Bios life is that living, breathing, but then dying kind of life. Jesus is offering living water which gives Zoe life. Eternal life. It's very similar to when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about things that come from earth and things that come from heaven. Jesus offers information from a heavenly perspective. Jesus offers water that can only come from heaven, the kind that gives eternal life. And here's where that Jeremiah passage comes in, is is so important that uh, Jeannie read earlier. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We are made to have our life in God. We are made to be in relationship with Him, to draw our life, to draw the living water from Him. And the trouble comes when we decide to try and forsake God and dig our own wells, to try and find life in other things besides our Creator. Okay? When we try and find our life, our source, in other things besides our Creator, we're in a sense digging our own wells, trying to find water somewhere else. Many times we try and fill ourselves with sensual experiences. I, I'm so thankful that God has given us senses. I woke up this morning, my window was cracked, and I heard the birds singing in my apple tree right outside the window. I'm so God, uh, thankful for my eyes that can see this beautiful place that we get to call home. This is an incredible place to live. So much beauty. I'm really thankful for my taste buds. I guess taste food. But any time we make the sensual experiences the focal point, we try and find our happiness there, we might as well be digging a well somewhere else. We can do it with our senses. We can do it with our careers, our performance, intelligence, our physical abilities. The power of technology is so seductive. The control of information. We can try and find our life there. Sometimes... Sometimes even our family can become a false well. We can try and emphasize that so much that we don't draw our life from God. The the Scripture begs this question of us. Have we forsaken God for other wells? And certainly in certain aspects of our life, maybe the question should be, how have we forsaken God for other wells? Do we really think that anything but God will bring us living water, real life? The fact of the matter is that all other wells are going to fail us. The only true source of life is Jesus and the living water that He offers. There's good news here. Think about how hard 
a job it is to constantly be digging somewhere else, trying to find life in other things. When we forsake God and try and find life in other areas, our happiness, our joy is incumbent on how hard we work. But in this scripture, Jesus says, I will fill you with living water. I will make a spring rise up in you. Who's doing the work in that scripture? Jesus is doing the work in that scripture. The the well that comes from God, the well of living water, is something that is done to us, not something that we strive for. That's why this is in the gospel. That's why it's good news. Jesus gives us water that becomes a spring in us, something that happens. Now, of course, this Samaritan woman, she doesn't have the luxury of reading Jeremiah like we do. Samaritans didn't read the the prophets. They didn't believe they were Scripture. Remember, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. She couldn't know all the things that you and I could know. And this is why we might join the first century readers in being just a little bit embarrassed by the Samaritan woman. Here's why. Notice how close this story is to the story about Nicodemus. There's many parallels. First of all, both were alone in Jesus. Both were alone with Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why did he come at night? He was ashamed. He was ashamed to be seen with Jesus because it might ruin his reputation. The Samaritan woman is in high noon, in the light of the day, and Jesus goes to her. He should have been ashamed to be with her, but he wasn't. He risked his reputation to make contact with the woman who was hurting and in pain. Here's another way Jesus, uh, the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus are similar. Jesus uses weird statements with them both, enigmatic statements. He tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And the woman, of course, he says, ask me and I'll give you springs of living water. And this is just completely weird. But Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus is a scholar. Nicodemus is from a good pedigree. Nicodemus should have better known better. He should have seen Jesus as fulfillment of all those prophecies. It's right there in his face. The Samaritan woman is not a scholar. And, you know, her lifestyle suggests she's not very religious either. Being a Samaritan, she wouldn't have even have read the prophets. She couldn't, she could not even really know what Jesus was talking about. But she trusts him, even if it's just a little bit. And on the surface, she's a much less likely disciple than Nicodemus. Jesus breaks down all this water talk, offers living water. She doesn't know what he's talking about, not fully. But then she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. Sir, give me this water. 
Now you've got to remember something. No, she doesn't understand what she's saying yet. She thinks that Jesus is offering, literally, some kind of magic water that if she drinks it, she won't be thirsty anymore. Okay? That would be a miracle, would it not? That's some kind of faith that she would ask for that. Okay? Now think about this. This is really weird to get in, in these shoes. You're a first century Jewish reader. Your man, Nicodemus, he's the teacher of Israel. You're reading these two stories side by side and you so want him to come out the good guy. But here is this Samaritan woman. Oh, she's so impure and oh, she's living a dirty lifestyle. She's the one showing faith. Don't you? I, I was trying to think what's a good example to illustrate this, and I was thinking, whenever like a Christian gets shown up on national television, does it, it kind of makes me cringe. A few years ago, there was an episode of uh, Amazing Race. If you're not familiar, it's like a it's a reality show where several groups, uh, teams of two. How many start out? Like twelve? Yeah, twelve teams of two start off in a particular place and it's basically a, a scavenger hunt around the world and each, usually each, each week somebody uh, gets kicked off until you have the winning couple well there was this Christian couple on there that I just it, part of the show is they go through all these stressful situations and there's a camera like in, on them when they're in the car and on them when they're debating how they're going to do a different task and this Christian couple was constantly like fighting and being petty and cheating and it was like oh this is so hard to watch and then there was this hippie couple that was like whatever man we just want everybody to win and they ended up killing this Christian they, they weren't even that competitive but they just conquered it it was like really hard to watch and I wonder if this is a little bit like reading the story like ah Nicodemus here's our man and he's a, he acts like a buffoon in the beginning now we know later on that Nicodemus becomes a disciple and, and had actually a, a big turnaround um, but the, right now the Samaritan woman seems like she has really got, uh, got the faith and here's the real crux of the issue it's not how well the woman understood Jesus. She did not understand that he was offering eternal life. She did not understand that she had to repent. In fact, we'll get to that next time, next week. But she took what she did understand, or thought she got, and she trusted Jesus with that little amount. Now listen, some of you might be overwhelmed with the Bible or overwhelmed with Christianity, or overwhelmed with the nuances of Trinitarian theology. So am I. So am I. Jesus isn't asking us to understand it all, and certainly not all right now. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. And maybe for you this evening, it's all you can do to say, Jesus, I want to want to trust you. Well, that's a place to start. And maybe some of you, all you can say is, Jesus, I believe that you love me and died for me, and I don't know much else than that. Well, that's a great place to start. And then there's those of you who have been walking with Jesus a long time, and you've got the basics down. But you realize, maybe just even during this sermon, that you've been digging a few wells on the side. Maybe you've been looking for life in places that aren't offering living water. Well, there's always 
now as a time to start. What would it look like? What would it look like to turn back to the source of living water? When's the last time you asked Jesus for a drink? Wherever you are, you might as well start somewhere. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so gracious, so merciful. Thank you for thank you for doing this with the Samaritan woman. And thank you for in your providence having it written down and translated and oh that's just such a miracle that we have it here today in 2009. I thank you for your word that comforts and challenges and shows us that you will stop at nothing. You'll risk your pride, you'll risk your glory to lower yourself to talk to to this woman and you and you even talk to us. Lord, I thank you for offering us your love, eternal life. Lord, you know where each one of us is at this evening. You know our deepest hurts, our deepest desires. You know where we're digging other wells. You know where we lack faith. You know where we think we know more than we do. Lord, for all of us who may be too prideful to ask or too faithless to ask, or anywhere in between. Would you fill us with living water? The presence of God in these earthen vessels we call bodies. Lord, we're desperate for you. We're lost without you. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Thank you for your faith.